Gyro Nation Metal. Welcome back to Gyro Nation Metal. My name is Jeff and I'll be your host. Today, vocalist and frontman of Canadian power metal band Ravenous, R.A. Voltaire joins us from Calgary, Alberta. Ravenous will have released their second album called Hubris on October 22nd of this year. Ravenous has also partnered with Calgary's New Level Brewing to craft their own beer called Speed Metal Blonde. Rav, thanks for coming on the podcast and welcome. It's good to meet you. Thanks, man. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for having me. Anytime. So when I was trying to familiarize myself with your content, uh, I had a good laugh at your pre-order video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's apparent that you guys just like to have a blast and you don't take yourselves too seriously. No, God, no, not at all. Um, all of our favorite bands do not take themselves seriously at all. And that was like a cultural thing that really transferred over when we started playing this music. If anyone takes power metal seriously, then... I mean, they're, they're about as serious as a blacklight poster, so... <laughs> <laughs> so it, um, is that something that you see consistently in power metal, or is that something that you guys have brought just from your own personality? Well, yeah, I mean, for us, like, we're just a bunch of nerds playing music that we enjoy, right? And mm-hmm. we, we took this any level... Like, we take it seriously in the sense that, you know, we're committed to our fans. We Anything that we say we're going to do, we follow through. You know, those levels of seriousness are important, but that's just commitment. Um... Whereas if we took it seriously, like, oh, we're the best, like we're going to the sa- the saviors of power metal and fucking whatever else. I mean, it's just it's just poppycock at this point. <laughs> um, you guys had a pretty creative way to um, to have fans pre-order your video. You had multiple combos and it's a good way to engage. Did you have anybody sign up for combo number eight, the thousand dollar package? Yeah, we did. Oh, really? We actually had we had someone do it on the first album pre-order, which was yeah. stunning, to say the least, because they did it, like, with an hour left in the pre-order campaign, and then just this, like, $1,000 order came in. We didn't even know what to give them. We just put it up as a joke. So we ended up saying that it was, like, a um, lifetime merch subscription yeah. for the band. And uh, and then this time around, we just we put it up there, and, like, well, if that wasn't ridiculous enough, then we put up the uh, $4,305 you know, leet speak, ravenous package. Nobody bought that one, thankfully. Otherwise, I'd I'd have no clue what to do other than just fly out to them and like take them <laughs> out for dinner. So, did you? So you did have a couple other people uh, do the thousand dollars this time around? Yeah, yeah, and they they nice. bought in. They 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 paid for a lifetime merch subscription. Um, they get a cover song. They get one of every item. Like, there's there's some diehard ravenous fans. I mean, that's something in general about our fans that we really love. Is mm-hmm. it's not the it's not a matter of quantity it's a matter of quality like and i'm not just talking about the net spend but also just the people themselves you know they are dedicated they support us they want to see us succeed and anything that we release they they want to get their hands on it so well it helps when you're you're releasing like quality product um just taking a look at your merch page just before uh the show here You've got an incredible, incredible amount of designs, um, a lot of freedom, and you're even selling face masks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got everything. We had face masks, chopsticks. We had the uh, Ravenass booty shorts. Nice. Those were, uh, those were a huge hit. Um, yeah, no, it's it's about keeping it interesting, right? Like, to us, you know, we have to accept that in this day and age that we're living in, streaming, you know, services and record purchases and all that kind of stuff, like, it's, it's not... A, it's a net loss for us, really, ultimately. Mm-hmm. So... In that regard, the only things you can't download are physical merch items. So if you create not only appealing merch as far as like designs, but then you also create things that are of good quality. I mean, that's why we don't cheap out on our merch. I mean, we could 
cut down the quality of the shirts and cut down the quality of the prints, charge people, you know, maybe half as much. But we, we had a little like forum survey through our, our little discord group that we have. And we were like, would you prefer to pay more for better quality or pay less and just get merch? And every single person was like, pay more, get good quality. So that's where we're keeping it. And you guys also take a creative approach. Like there's a whole wide range of like imagery that you guys have. Um, it's pretty cool to see very colorful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, colorful is one thing. There are very few printers in Canada that could do full color shirts and like do them well. Mm-hmm. Shout out to uh, AMI clothing in BC. Cause they're one of the only ones that can do it. Otherwise most of our stuff is actually printed in the U S because I mean, that's just where all of our, our best printers are. They create the best quality shirts Mm-hmm. Best quality prints, the most unique options, and that's what we got to go. With. Especially hard for us because we do artwork for like each single as well. Yeah. And even up on the website right now, we got artwork for the singles that aren't even out yet, but the ones that we're planning on doing music videos for. But we already have the artwork, so we're like, hey, throw it up on the shop, and yeah, do do what we do best. You guys have a cool red T-shirt on there. Are you guys planning on making other colors of T-shirts, or are you guys going to generally stick with darker? So. This is this is a user interface thing with Bandcamp, but you can't throw in like multiple multiple options. It's not like mm-hmm. Etsy. Like we used to have an Etsy store, and it was actually really awesome because then it's organized like a web store, right? This mm-hmm. is kind of just organized like a merch page. So we keep it really simple. But I mean, I'm, I'm putting this out there because it's happened enough times. Anybody that messages us and is just like, "Hey, uh, I just bought like this T-shirt. Can I get it in like purple?" I was like, yeah, fuck it, man. I'll, I'll make it for you in purple. Like, whatever you want. I don't really care. And we're, we're always really facilitating to our fans like that. And, and it was a lot during the pre-order because, I mean, we sold 15 grand worth of stuff, like, before the album even came out. And I had guys messaging me, like, could I get this on, like, a teal shirt or, like, you know, pink tie-dye? I'm like, yeah, man, whatever you want. Like, you, the customer's always right. Whatever makes you happy, I will make it happen. So to anyone else, if you buy something off our website, just uh, as long as it's not something ridiculous, like, but I bought a t-shirt. Can I get it as a zip-up hoodie instead? I'm like, well, that's like four times the cost. So yeah, and I'm going to charge you the difference. <laughs> that's awesome. You guys are very accommodating, but that's, uh, again, like you mentioned earlier, your level of commitment towards your customers. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about your new um, your new album, Hubris. Um, it's coming out here on the 22nd. Uh, so this podcast will be out after it's been released. What are some of the last minute things you guys are trying to tie up before the release of your album? Honestly, we've uh, we've done this so many times with so many different projects that mm-hmm. we've you know we've had these discs sitting in our bedrooms for like three months now. Okay, you cool. know, <laughs> like it's we're well prepared in advance. So right now it's kind of the uh, the Swedish adage of hurry up and wait. Mm-hmm. You know, you rush to get all these things done. Make sure you have it all in hand. Make sure nothing's wrong with it. Um, but by the time it comes to this point, now we are just focusing on interviews, focusing on media, advertising, just kind of getting the word out, right? That's that's really the only concerns that we'd have because, you know, five years ago when we put out whatever first album in one of our other bands and we're like rushing, panicking to like get them in our hands before we start playing shows and everything, everything was just used to be a mess. So we've learned from enough mistakes to just be prepared well in advance. So then when you're trying to be prepared, do you guys set a deadline for yourself or do you just wait organically until the album's done and then release everything? No, we we set deadlines for everything. So um, we have like a band calendar. Yeah. Shout out to G Suite. <laughs> but it's uh, it's one of those things where it's just like we 
need to stay organized then i mean i i I even forget things sometimes and that's why i need to set a thousand Mm -hmm. reminders you know hey you need to finish this by this point and get it ready to go i mean even now like we have a lot of um or i had a lot of guest spots coming up during the recording of this album you know we did uh did a feature with planeswalker uh did a feature with ark and fire doing a feature with trying to remember who else eons enthroned um there's even a, a power glove one coming out and it's things like that where it's like setting those reminders that's like do the power glove thing and mm-hmm. then the next day no seriously do the power glove thing next week did you do the power glove thing yet like this is when you need to submit it and that's what my calendar looks like so that i can constantly remind myself you know as crazy as life gets you have to stay on top of these things otherwise the whole thing just kind of crumbles and you get you become known as a unreliable artist right Mm-hmm. So we got to do the same for the band itself, where it's like pre-order ends this day. By the time it was like 24 hours left on the pre-order, I had a stack. I even stre- I Twitch streamed it. I uh, I had a stack of envelopes and I was just printing shipping labels, slapping them on and licking envelopes and just chatting with, with our fans while we were doing it because we just, yeah. you know, got to stay on top of that. And that's a really cool way to engage the fans, too. They see part of the process. They see what work you're putting into it and realize, hey, these guys appreciate what we're giving them. Oh yeah, and we we let them know everything. We even show them stats or like this is how much we paid in shipping. This is what like the cost of printing all the merch was. This was like all the different countries we got to ship to. Like we we really try to involve them with the process as much as possible because I can't remember who told me this. I think it may have been um Andrew Kingsley from uh Unleash the Archers. But he told me he's like normally with bands you just monetize the product, right? Your product mm-hmm. comes out, you want people to pay for it. But there's two steps before that, and that's process. People want to see the process that goes into a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And then it's personality. If if you have the process and the personality, you have a whole schwack of things that you can engage people with before it's just the actual product. And somehow, most times, it actually ends up becoming more valuable than the product itself. That's true. And then, then when you show that kind of engagement and um, that kind of, I guess, commitment again, it allows people to buy into your goal so much more. And Another thing that I think is cool about that is it seems to, I guess it seems to match the personality of your band as well. Like it's very cheerful, very uplifting, kind of um, energetic. So having that behind the scenes as well is a cool combination. Yeah, which, which is funny because someone called us something crazy in an interview or a review. And it was like darkened, symphonic, power thrash, speed metal. And I was just like, wow, man, dude, just too much, man. You could just call us a power metal band. It's okay. <laughs> It's nice if you're looking for one specific thing, but I find there's too many damn genres to pay attention to every single one. Yeah, and, and I'm all about it. Like, my favorite times are, you know, when I hang out with people from other bands and you mm-hmm. really nerd out, like, in the human encyclopedia level on, like, deep subgenres and specific members and all this kind of stuff. And and that kind of lends itself to our eclectic nature because we, we were all about that, right? Like, take mm-hmm. five guys from five different genres that have their own bands blend it all together into a smoothie that makes, you know, what we are. Because, yeah, it's power metal, but there's so much elements of other things, and it's it's hard to walk that line of being eclectic, but then also, you know, maintaining a consistent product. And yeah. we, we have to check ourselves a lot of times because, you know, something will be too black metal or too proggy or just too whatever, and we, we kind of have to be like, what what would this be like if it's ravenous and we have to kind of pull ourselves back and change it. And do you guys all, uh, I guess, hold each other accountable in that 
circumstance? You say, hey, look, there's too much of this in it, and just yeah. check each other? Yeah, like the primary process, I mean, I, I, we can delve deep into the actual process, but for the most part, it's myself and Jake Wright, the uh, guitar player. We, you know, write a lot of music. We spend a lot of time together. We're constantly around each other just pitching ideas. But then mm -hmm. when we're sitting in the studio together, because, I mean, we, we self-recorded this new album. And when we're sitting in the studio together, it's it's really important for us to kind of keep each other in check. Mm -hmm. um, but then on top of it, when we finish an idea, rather than just kind of hitting print, then we send it to the other guys who can't be there saying, you know, hey, what's your what's your feedback? What's your contribution? Does this work? Does this fit into what we're going for? And yeah, it's just it's uh, it's less of a too many cooks in the kitchen and yeah. more of a just like a solid committee of, you know, people whose opinions we trust and we. We want to hear it from them. Plus, we have industry panels, so to speak, like focus groups featuring other people that are prominent in the industry. And we usually pitch our ideas to them just to kind of say, hey, you know, is this on brand? Does this sound good? What's what's missing? What needs to be removed? And um, yeah, so far it works out really well. Nice. So moving forward with your new album, what are some things that you wanted to stay consistent? And how did you decide like what to choose from the previous album? Mm. Sorry, I just need a sip of water. No, it's um, I guess with the first album, the biggest thing was that this was something new to us, right? Like, we had done an EP very quickly. Like, that whole EP was recorded in, like, three days, you know? Yep. Slap it all together, put it out. And um, that was kind of to test the waters. I just got back from um, touring Europe, personally, just backpacking to various festivals and you know, kind of having like a little bit of a pilgrimage. And it was it was an amazing experience. I'd just come out of a really rough five years chapter in my life and was oh, no. looking for a change. And I kind of found that in the thralls of, you know, the power metal community and just the European metal community in general, like you find a lot more open-mindedness and acceptance in that community. And so when I was there, that's that's kind of where I came up with the idea for the band and started demoing things. And then when we got back, we put out our, our first album. And it was great in the sense that, you know, that was also self-recorded. It was all mixed and mastered locally. And we just wanted to create something because, you know, where we come from, well, sorry, where you're based out of as well, it's a lot of death metal, black metal, like, you know, and it's that's very characteristic of the North in general. You know, we have harsh weather and shitty storms and all kinds of things. Like the the universe, Mother Nature just hates us here for some reason. So well, you don't like the snow, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so with that though, like that's that's characteristic that you create harsher music, and that's why you know even like Canadian black metal is you know still pretty well known around the world. You know, I'm pretty sure Dark Throne even has a song about like the Edmonton black metal scene, just because it, it especially in the tape trading days, was really iconic. Mm -hmm. But um, when we put that out, we were we were all in a really good place and a really good mood. And so we just created this, like, we call it fist-pumping, you know, sabatani kind of power metal. And that's all we were going for on the first album. But with the second one, I mean, we're sitting in a lockdown. We're unsure of what the future is going to hold. Our lives are basically falling apart around us. And the only thing that we could kind of control and hold consistent in our lives was creating music. But as a result, you get a much a darker product right like it doesn't have to be in the scales and the notes that we use but you get mm -hmm. something that suddenly has a lot more attack and a lot more personality in it and mm -hmm. i think this album actually defined what what ravenous is and who we are 
And that's why on this album, there's only one song that kind of sounds like something from the first album. Mm-hmm. Everything else is, it's almost something completely new. And the reality is we won't be going too far away from that on future projects. Cause I mean, we still have, we've got like four albums loaded up in the chamber right now, just like waiting to see which one we want to release next. And we're trying not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but yeah, with this new one, it's a lot more of that raw emotion and just general psychoticness of like being locked in a cell for mm-hmm. years on end. It it brings out something different in you. And I think that's, that's where we really had the major change from album one to album two. Did you have any uh, Japanese exclusives on your first album? Yeah, so the way that worked out, the first album came out, we were just doing our thing, testing the waters, seeing if people would even like it. Honestly, we we kind of thought, you know, being, again, where we're from, most people would be like, ah, oh, this sucks. But uh, what we quickly realized is that we play power metal for people who hate power metal. <laughs> like, <laughs> we have a lot of, de- like, angry death metal and crotchety old black metal dudes that were like, oh, yeah, that's not too bad. I thought it would be like this fairy Dungeons and Dragons crap, but, you know, you guys are good. And... Um, you know, that, that was a compliment to us. And um, so when it came out and we saw that people liked it, we were contacted by our current um, Japanese label, Spiritual Beast. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, hey, you know, we, we want to work with you guys. We want to put out a Japanese version of your CD, yada, yada. Um, but do you have any bonus tracks for us? And mm-hmm. at this point, we already finished recording. So we're like, uh, not really. So I think we gave them um, we gave them an alternate version of one of the songs because Strength of a Warrior used to be strength of a hero Mm -hmm. um so we gave them that and then we gave them like an old demo called into the abyss and put that up gave that to them but it it was kind of like a very last minute thing and we we learned that usually when you do a japanese release Mm -hmm. there's bonus tracks involved and all that kind of stuff but this time around we had it prepared right because we're on the label now so we knew like hey as we're sitting in the studio what are we going to do for these guys and so we ended up giving them the cover song and um and the the japanese version of our first single die 1000 deaths mm-hmm. so do you actually speak japanese or did you just learn the songs so i do not speak japanese um i got a few sentences under my belt just to be cute but uh pete pete Klassen from striker he lived in japan i think for like a decade mm-hmm. and uh, is fluent in it so now that he's kind of living back in alberta and playing with striker we contacted him saying, hey, we, we got this song. It's completely written, ready to go. Um, can you translate these lyrics into Japanese? And can you make them work? And that's the thing that we really liked about working with Pete because mm-hmm. he's not just someone who speaks Japanese and is translating word for word. He's a musician. He understands composition. He knows where certain words need to change, syllables need to fit in certain spots, and the flow needs to be there. Mm-hmm. So not only did he give us all the stuff in Japanese, but then he also gave us like a phonetic mapping so he's like, here's how you say like every little syllable and how you say it properly. Oh, cool. And then even recorded himself doing it, sent mm-hmm. it to us. I recorded it a bunch of times, would send it to him, be like, hey, how's this? Go, okay, here you got to go E, not Ui, and, you know, like down to the minute syllable. Um, by the time it was all done, we showed it to our label and they're like, yeah, actually, like your Japanese is really good. Like your pronunciation is perfect. And that's because we took the time and effort to just go through all that and get it perfectly. That sounds good too. Um, it's interesting. Like I can imagine it being quite difficult to adapt um, singing in another language that they're not familiar with. I mean, kind of. So um, 
couple other people have asked about this and and it's it's started to get me thinking about it but i think i've already sung in about 12 different languages like professionally in my career yeah so it eventually gets to a point where it's less about singing in a, in another language it, it basically falls more to your acting skills more than it does your singing skills okay if you can embody what goes into that and i mean i listen to a ton of japanese metal so mm-hmm. it you know for me it was more like emulating bands like i don't know galnerius you know it's like emulating what they sound like and the expression that comes out and the funny thing is when you're singing in a language that's not your first language you mm-hmm. actually come out a little more dramatic you know like you're putting more of like this act onto it at least if you're yep. good you know most people be like fushi yogamu no wabushi no sadame like you know but when i'm doing it i'm like i feel like a fucking anime character like fushi yogamu no wabushi no sada you know like it, and it it's fun and it's enjoyable and i don't know what the fuck i'm saying but i'm saying it right and other people are hearing it they're like yeah that's so awesome and uh, even live, like we were, we were thinking about it. We we're like, do we do this song in English or in Japanese um, when we play it live? And we even just decided, like, fuck it, we'll just leave it up to the crowd. You know, like we'll do a little, you know, crowd cheer, crowd vote, decide what language you're gonna do, and then that's the only difficult part is then the the switching in my head of being like, okay, I need to now remember this song twice over like two sets of lyrics and make sure I don't screw them up. Interesting. Do you find that um, that you have more of a a fan base in Japan, or do you find that like most of your fan base is here in North America? So, um, like, I, I do a lot of work with our analytics. Like, I'm, I'm constantly taking a look at this stuff and trying to understand what's going on. And mm-hmm. I think even just fully ranked, the U.S. is actually our, where the majority of our fans are, and mm-hmm. then Canada second, which go figure most canadian bands that's that's kind of just the way it is with population um then the uk then sweden then japan then like australia and i think those are kind of like where most of our main fans come from but mm-hmm. our japanese fan base is growing because the one thing i kind of learned with the japanese fan base there isn't really as much um one hit wonders going on in heavy metal it's okay. kind of like uh it's kind of like the rpg grind so I uh, I equate this to most bands and like I do a lot of consulting for other bands just to help them with, you know, whether it's graphic design stuff or just getting their merch supply chain set up properly so they're actually turning a profit. And uh, a biggest thing I tell them about their music is every song you put out is like a lottery ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, music is not something where you can just grind it out, you slowly gain EXP and eventually you make it to the end game. You could be a person that puts out one song that's your lottery ticket. You hit the million dollar jackpot and you're just famous. Or you could be the person that has bought lottery tickets, you know, a hundred lottery tickets a year for the last 10 years. And you still live in your mom's basement. That's just the nature of what it is with the music. So, but with the Japanese crowd, there's a little bit more of that building. You know, we had X amount of fans for the first album. By the Mm -hmm. time the second one is coming out, now it's building upon that and it's spreading. And that's something that's very unique to Japan compared to a lot of other places where you can put out 100 albums and it's not until you put out that one song that just happens to click and mm-hmm. then you take off. And that, that's been the story for most of our fa- our friends that have hit that level of success. It was endless grinds, you know, 10 years of playing small clubs and shitty dive bars. And then finally one day they put out a video, it blew up. Next thing you know, their overnight sensation 
the mm -hmm. thing that kills me is then people are like, oh, like, have you heard this new band, Unleash the Archers? I'm like, this guy's been around for like 11, 12 years already. Like, <laughs> but, you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's still nice to see because it just shows you that there is really no, there's no point in giving up unless mm -hmm. you've truly lost your passion for the music. But if success is your driver, then, man, you're just, you're playing the lottery. Like, just buy your tickets, shut the fuck up, hope you win. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you said you're, earlier that your background isn't uh, necessarily power metal. Where did you come from in metal, and um, how did you start singing? I mean, the full version, like, what got me into metal, um, I had a shitty babysitter that just would, like, throw me in front of the TV. So, you know... 3 a.m. and I'm flipping through the channels. We had much music instead of MTV, right? As mm -hmm. Canadians, in case someone from outside of Canada is going to hear this. So we had much music and they had a loud segment. And uh, Much Loud would play all their like metal and stuff at like 3 o'clock in the morning. And mm -hmm. I saw Her Ghost in the Fog by Cradle of Filth. And I was like 10 years old or 12 years old. And I was just like, whoa, this is, this is great. Like, it's making my pants tingle. What the hell is happening? And... Um, just fell in love with the aesthetic and everything that was going on in the video. And basically the week after I went out and bought a guitar, uh, I've never had any musical training, which is difficult in some regards because now as I've gotten older, I, I get very irritated when people tell me how to perform. <laughs> but um, that's that's kind of where it all started. But the, the reality, and like with most kids, you know, you don't start off guitar learning Cradle of Phil. So, you know, you start off playing Metallica songs and Megadeth songs and whatever kind of basic stuff you can get your hands on. You start playing in your junior high talent show cover bands. Funny story, uh, growing up, um, so from kindergarten to my first year of university, I grew up with uh, Adam Brown, who's the drummer for Stryker, mm -hmm. and uh, Yasho Kulikowski, who's the, who's the guitar player for Cobra and the Lotus. So we all grew up together. And we were nerds, we'd play Magic the Gathering, we'd play video games, we'd go to concerts together, like we were inseparable. Mm -hmm. And um, so when we started playing music seriously, that's when we started forming bands together. And that was the beginning of our, of our local band run. So as far as actual bands and originals, my very first band was a power metal band. Uh, I was playing okay. bass and it was fun, it was interesting, but it never really like went far. And then I started mm -hmm. playing thrash metal and that's really where everything unlocked in me. Like, everything had to be fast. Every little thing had to be technical and tight. You know, you have mm -hmm. to write really insane riffs to stand out in the crowd. People made fun of you if you, you couldn't downpick fast enough. So you'd spend all your time just getting your downpicking hand up to speed. Like, that that's kind of where it all began for me. So really, when people ask what genre influenced me the most, really, it was thrash metal. Because getting into the speed, getting into the accuracy, and just the general shenanigans right like i'd go to a municipal mm -hmm. waste show and be like why do i feel more fired up after this than i do when i go to see any other show and that's because just the energy of a thrash metal crowd is so much more and then even when i got into the scene and started you know booking shows and and working with bands you know punk shows thrash shows and hardcore shows that's what i call like the little the crust triangle yeah um but between punk hardcore and thrash like those were always the shows that had the best energy and so after that, I was just like, hey, like, I need to bring this to everything I do. Like, I could be doing Janis Joplin covers. I need to bring this energy into it. And so if I'm ever somewhere where it's, like, not well set up for crowd surfing or for moshing or for any of that stuff, I'm like, we need to fix this. We need to, like, change this before the show starts. 
because if it doesn't have that energy like that's a failure of a show to be Mm -hmm. you know we can fuck up our notes we can make mistakes pop a string whatever happens if the energy of the show was lacking that then we failed as entertainers when you start to experience um on stage maybe a dip in engagement or a dip in excitement how do you change the crowd's mood well, I mean, a lot of what we do is really well rehearsed. I mean, again, that's something I learned from just the nonstop tours of shows. But even when like backpacking through festivals, you know, when you do the European festival circuit, you see a lot of the same bands perform. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I see Devin Townsend once, I'm like, man, this guy's just improvising off the top of his head and making it work. And then, you know, all this stuff's going up. But then when you see him six times in two months, you're like, this is all rehearsed. Mm-hmm. He's just such a good actor that it sounds like he's ad-libbing but the reality is he rehearses every single thing that he does, everything he says, every motion he makes, like it's just down to a T. Mm-hmm. So for us, you know, we have a very rehearsed package, but if something doesn't react, then I, I kind of learned this from my friends that are stand-up comedians. They're they're the ones that gave me the the mental flow of what to do if something doesn't work. So typically as a comedian, you tell a joke or you ask the crowd something or whatever it may be, they'll they'll typically get the response they were expecting. Like, we're humans, we're pretty predictable and wired in certain ways. But it kind of works like a choose-your-own-adventure, like a flow chart. So it's like, okay, tell this joke. Did they laugh? Yes. Go this way, continue this way. Did they laugh? No. Okay, then say this other thing to, like, save some face or say this other more outlandish thing and then reroute back to your main route and then continue on the journey. And, and that's kind of what's going through my head constantly right mm-hmm. like you know case in point if we go to ask the crowd you know this next song is in english and in japanese who wants to hear it in english and it's like uh, who wants to hear it in japanese uh, I'm like who wants us to get the fuck off stage you know like you know it's and it's and it's just something that has to always be ready to go reality is you're gonna get your thing and then you know we'll, we'll make it work but it's about playing the crowd right and mm-hmm. you see it in bands where they just don't don't have much to say mm-hmm. and that's fine but to me like stage banter is the most entertaining part of the set to me because most bands are so tight and consistent it really just sounds like they're playing their album you know they're not doing anything interesting or different to their own songs they're just putting out the offering mm-hmm. you know and so then the banter becomes the unique portion that becomes the thing that you know i'm not going to get anywhere else and that's that's always been my strive like that's where you grab the crowd it's actually not while you're playing the music the music is is really the intermission between, you know, once you have them off of that, then that's when you're you're primed and ready to go in between songs to grab them and maintain their attention. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, at least when I'm watching a show, um, that could be my only opportunity to speak with one of the members, not necessarily personally, but I mean, as an audience member, they're talking to me, they're, they're engaging with me and seeing what I enjoy. Yeah. So that would be far more memorable than just somebody plugging through their album like you said yeah and like we've had a couple key moments during the songs that have mm-hmm. been really memorable there was a point where everyone dropped to the floor and started rowing during one of our songs and like into the pictures it looks fucking stupid because it's just a bunch of people like <laughs> you know air air nascar driving it looks like but at the time and playing in the crowd it, it felt amazing right and, and it, it caught me by surprise i didn't even know what mm-hmm. to do so then i started screaming i'm like row 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 you useless fucks row like our lives depend on it and they were so into it and and that made it an amazing experience but you you rarely get that when you're performing your songs because 
you got to be on point and you got to and then so realistically the best thing bands can do is integrate those moments into their music when they play live mm-hmm. you know like we play to a, a a click track right like we're all we all got our in-ears and we're we're always like consistently on time and our set is perfectly timed and blah 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 so we have to physically create gaps to have those so half the time when i'm talking there's a metronome just going in my head and i have to be like focusing on the metronome as i'm just trying to have a conversation you'd imagine just this non-stop while you're trying to talk to someone and you're just like it's it's hard but you rehearse it enough times you begin to get the grasp of it so i know okay i got just enough time in this like four bars to shit talk people in the crowd and then it just kicks right back into the song twice as fast i have to be ready for that that's pretty cool you have to adapt really fast on stage it seems yeah and really it, it just comes with experience i've mm-hmm. been doing this now for like playing on stages for fuck 19 years so it really takes a certain level of comfort and also knowing that you can't really do wrong um mm-hmm. you know we've seen a lot of moments in heavy metal history where fuck phil anselmo zig hiles or you know someone just walks off stage to take a shit I mean, I've, I've seen everything, too, especially working in venues. Like, I'd be seeing 20 to 30 acts a week. Yeah. And I've seen atrocious, atrocious things that, that could have just been better handled. That's really all it is, because they thought it was all about their music. The reality is the crowd was there to connect with them as artists. And mm-hmm. the people that robbed the crowd of that, I think, are the ones that are, that are really just doing themselves the biggest disservice, right? Where they think that their music is infallible. And that's that's part of why we don't take it that seriously, because... We're there to have fun with the crowd. You know, the music is secondary. I think with that attitude comes the um, the point that you made earlier about it being kind of a slow grind and getting more fans per album. It's like, again, you're treating them with such respect and you're you're valuing their time more than than your own product. So I think that's that's one reason that people might be drawn to your band. Maybe, yeah, maybe. So how did you go from uh, playing bass and guitar into singing and with no training? Like, you're a very talented vocalist. Um, where did that come from? Uh, honestly, I would just get drunk and go to karaoke bars all the time. <laughs> anywhere enough. I went, anywhere I traveled, <laughs> that was, like, one of my things. Like, is there a karaoke bar here? Because it was a really easy way to make friends, honestly, um, especially being, like, going from city to city and mm-hmm. traveling all the time. It uh, Karaoke was a way to kind of connect with people or even just, like, find other metalheads, right? You'd get mm-hmm. on stage, you'd sing something relatively metal. I mean, their catalogs are usually pretty limited. But then you'd, you'd connect with other people like, man, I love Judas Priest. I'm like, oh, okay, well, sweet. I also don't have a place to sleep. So like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and yeah, that really was it. But that, that was my practice because, yeah, for the most part, I was, I've always been singing, you know, thrash metal and just screaming my lungs out. Um, but that, I, I guess on the note of album one, album two, that was another big difference. You know, album one, I had, this idea that we were just going to be like Sabaton and I'd have this gruff voice and mm-hmm. that's all I was good for and blah, blah, blah. On the second album, you know, there's there's been a lot of reception from the fans and a lot of critique on, you know, you know, can't really hear your vocals and it's quiet in the mix. And, you know, we've heard you sing on other things and started doing YouTube covers. And people are like, we've heard you sing on other things and you're a really good singer. Why don't you sing like that in Ravenous? And I just personally thought because everyone hated my voice. So... You know, it was almost like a matter of insecurity for a long time. And it it took a lot of coaxing to finally sing the way I do now. Um, and yeah, and, and it's it's changed things, right? Like I used to have mm-hmm. a lot of difficulty singing our own material. 
but by now with just doing things the right way and starting to look into you know what is the right way to sing i mean it's difficult when you have no training right mm -hmm. um but now when when this stuff's all coming up now it's just like yeah the, this is my voice and i have to learn to love it because you know i'm the only one that seems to hate it kind of thing it's an interesting perspective coming from the front man of a band for yep. sure absolutely and you know realistically the happiest i am is when i'm tracking demos and i'm just playing bass mm -hmm. and i'm just like god this is so easy there's four strings no chords like jesus christ <laughs> i love playing bass and and that's what it was for me right like i really enjoyed playing playing instruments and not having to speak mm -hmm. um so being the front man yeah it's uh it's another it's another mask that i have to wear and one that i wear with pride obviously mm -hmm. but it's it's something that i have to get myself into the zone and really like even to this day i still suffer from stage fright and i just have to continuously remind myself that all i need to do to get rid of it is just take that first step on stage mm -hmm. and it all washes away like the second i am in front of the crowd all of it disappears and yeah has every time without fail that's interesting um it's hard to imagine like the performers being in in the game as long as you have uh still having stage right stage fright even though they've been up on stage hundreds of times yeah i think um bruce dickinson may have made a comment about it or maybe i just think it was him but he had made a comment about it that he still kind of gets anxious before going on stage and it just kind of shows you that you still care i think so like, too yeah, you were, you know, you get anxious and you get stage fright because you don't want things to go poorly. You want this to be an amazing performance. You really give a shit about the people that came and paid to be here and, mm -hmm. you know, everything that goes on. So I, I think that's, I'd like to think that it's because I care. I also know mm -hmm. it's because I have crippling, like, <laughs> unchecked, unmedicated anxiety. And I just have to deal with that in my own way. I used to deal with it with drugs and drinking. Now I just deal with it with, you know, getting in the zone kind of thing and getting hyped up and channeling it into into energy for the stage. For somebody who has uh, such high levels of anxiety, you seem to put yourself in the spotlight quite a bit. Like you have Ravenous, you have your um, your Twitch streaming, your, your I guess, sing-throughs and everything on YouTube. Like it's, that's quite incredible. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's, it was kind of a habit thing. This is like, I don't know if you had this like growing up, I, I don't know how old you are, but you ever used to have anxiety by answering the phone, like your house phone as a kid? Oh, the worst is when my boss calls. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I still I still have anxiety about answering phone calls. But at the same time, you know, and, and my parents were very much the like the the stick over the carrot kind of yeah. thing. They weren't like, oh, if you answer the phone, I'll give you the treat. They're like, answer the damn fucking phone. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you just have to do it and you learn to cope. And it's it's become a thing where you know, let's let's call it the voices in my head. They become mm -hmm. a lot louder if I don't put myself in the spotlight. Because if I just sit there quietly in the background, then it's just me mm -hmm. left alone with my own thoughts. If I can jump on camera or if I can jump on a stream or jump on stage, then I'm in the moment, right? Then I'm mm -hmm. focused on what I'm doing. How am I entertaining these people? How am I providing content? And that becomes the uh, the real driver and it actually shuts those voices down. So really it's it's become my my countermeasure and my coping mechanism for having like crippling anxiety. That's pretty cool. It's actually uh, one of the common themes uh, since I've been, since I have started this podcast, I've talked to only six or seven guests now. And um, 
one of the common themes seems to be that it is a coping, like music itself is a coping mechanism for uh, struggles in life, whether it be anxiety or, um, I guess, negative events. Yeah. Yeah, music has always been there for me for through a lot of very traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, I've never been the one to put it into lyrics in the sense of, you know, Woke up today, girlfriend left me, truck broke down. It, it's more like, okay, how am I feeling right now? What kind of fantasy story does this relate to? And is it mm -hmm. an army of goblins that I feel like is building up in my chest? Then let's sing a song about goblins, you know? That's awesome. Um, this is actually a perfect time to ask. So um, talking about personal experiences, um, one of the motivations for your new album, Hubris, is something is relatable to some of the band members' real-life experiences and other things like games and movies and Magic the Gathering. Um, what can you tell us about the theme of Hubris and what kind of stories does it cover? Well, so as we were tracking, you know, we were coming up with riff ideas and coming up with song ideas, and, and the way we write is typically we'll start with the main riff. That hook becomes the, the map for the rest of the song. Mm -hmm. And we use it to kind of guide everything. So as we build off of it, we create all the music, the lyrics usually come at the end, where it's like, how does this make us feel? What does this make us think of? What kind of what kind of ideas does this type of song generate? And mm -hmm. then we'll create the lyrics. So before even having a central theme or a title to the album, we had put out, we had created six about 16 songs. Um, and we were looking at it and we were starting to come up with uh, album titles mm -hmm. and we go through and you know we, we had a ton I think one of them was like Pride and Predators or something and like I don't know we, we had so many terrible like we, we literally just had a word document just full of different album titles none mm -hmm. of them really worked and then we kind of looked at it and we landed on Hubris because we noticed that every song on the album had some story of arrogance of you know thinking you're better than everybody else of wanting to ascend to ultimate power or fame or wealth and not giving a shit about who got trampled in the way like mm -hmm. and 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 it, and it broke down right because i mean track one is uh is a historic historic track it's our social studies you know making fun of sabaton that like every song is like a history lesson so mm -hmm. we did a history a song out of history about the about carthage and the romans and that whole experience and the hubris is that you know rome was like their little brother and basically betrayed them to become the superpower that that they were mm -hmm. um with astral elixir you know on the surface it's all about this cosmic entity and really realizing you're a lot smaller than the universe you know than the world you've built around you but the whole song's about doing acid you know and son of storms you know like really just about this this being it's it's thor i guess and it's about striking down those who don't bow down and but you know, the whole song's about Legend of Zelda, you know? And so it's that that's what we mean by when we say we don't take ourselves seriously, you know, mm -hmm. all of the song die one thousand deaths, you know, killing your master and doing whatever it takes to reach ultimate power. Whole song's about Akuma from Street Fighter. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's because it's the only character I know how to play with, and I just like his aesthetic and you know, just been intrigued by the character. So everything that relates on this album, it it all fell into that central theme. That's when hubris came up. But as far as the individual songs, I mean, it, each one was kind of created in its own silo. And then we begin to rework as the bigger picture comes into place, mm -hmm. how things are going to change. And for some songs, it meant 
changing the title for some of them meant completely changing the lyrics um for other ones it meant completely changing how like the structure of the song just to finally then be like we have all these individual pieces we need to and now we know what the big picture is of the puzzle we need to like cut up these pieces and make them fit somehow and mm -hmm. that's that's ultimately how it all came together so do you have a, a favorite song to play or to sing on the album I can say that the hardest one to sing is the cover. Uh, the cover is the hardest one to sing by far. Uh, but favorites? Oh, man, it's it's really too early to tell. I mean, we're playing about five songs off the new album when we play live. They're all great. I Honestly, I'd personally say the clause the law. Yeah. Just because what that song stands for, you know, like it's it's like a typical proud to be a metalhead wrecking crew kind of song but it's just all about getting fucked up on white claws you know <laughs> that's awesome getting white girl wasted and and so what that represents you know obviously is just those fun times that we'd have but then also the people that got involved because we got involved with the dread crew of oddwood and mm -hmm. they contributed so much and then i flew out to la shot the video with them like it, there was so much surrounding that one song that i guess that one brings up like the best feelings when we perform it and mm -hmm. also involves the most crowd participation. So maybe I'd say that's probably the favorite of all. That's cool. And you guys are also doing a live DVD. Is that going to be released in tandem with your record or is it going to be released later on? So this came up separately. Um, Tyson Boyd from Concert Works in, in Edmonton, he, he owns the Starlight Room, which mm -hmm. is by far one of our favorite venues. And... Um, he had contacted us saying, hey, you know, I know you got a new album coming out. Um, we have no idea what's going on because every month there is new COVID restrictions and laws. He's like, but um, we got this grant funding. We're getting all these video cameras and getting this set up in permanently affixed into the venue. Um, would you be interested in doing like a live DVD? Mm -hmm. and we're like, yeah, sure. Sounds great. You know, like we, we don't have much for live footage. Mm -hmm. um, but then as it developed, it kind of turned into a little more of a thing because at first it was going to be, everything was going to be in lockdown. So that means there's going to be like camera guys at least six feet away with masks, a sound guy and like us on stage and nobody else in the venue, you know? Mm -hmm. And then we would just like show up, play, record it and it'd be done. But then as things changed and more things started to open up, then we were saying, okay, well, let, let's make this an actual live DVD. So we don't really know what we have in store for us because we haven't seen the setup. We haven't seen how it works. We're just anticipating that we get to play, it gets recorded with the video cameras, we get a full multi-track export from the board, mm -hmm. and then we can decide, you know, is this something of good enough quality that we want to put it forward? Or is it going to be something where it, it may just become a, a live EP? You mm -hmm. know, it may just become an album that we put up for free and just say, hey, here's Ravenous Live, check it out, enjoy it. But we, we kind of have to decide those things as we go because mm -hmm. this isn't the same level of, you know, we've planned this, We've sorted this out, and now we're we're executing. This is basically kind of like a cherry on top situation that happened to come up very last minute, and we're we're rolling with it and just making the best of it because that's that's really what we do, and that's the nature of the game. Would you have like backstage access um, during live DVD? Would it be something that they see you guys off the stage as well? I mean, I like the idea, but then that would require an actual videographer, so I would have to check with them if that's even in the books. Because I'm pretty sure they've just permanently affixed cameras like all over the venue. Okay. Um, hopefully, maybe they've affixed one into the backstage and can get a little idea of that. I mean, I love that stuff. That was half the fun of me watching, you know, live DVDs as a kid was all mm -hmm. the bonus content. 
But I think also that begins to tread on hubris for us where we don't believe we're big enough for people to give a shit. You know, this is our second album. All the labels we've pitched to have said, no, let's just go out, play our music, enjoy ourselves, you know, do what we do best mm-hmm. and maybe use it as a building block for something like that. I mean, the last live DVD I shot for the band, which will rename, remain unnamed, um, you know, that was something that had that, you know, backstage footage, crowd shots, you know, interacting with people afterwards. And, and I love that stuff because to me that exists as a moment in time, you know, frozen, trapped there forever that I could just go back and revisit whenever I'm not having the best time. Yeah, exactly. I think also if you had that uh, filmed, you could go back after a few more album releases and see kind of how things have changed backstage and where um, the reception is now because you probably have more fans trying to get a hold of you. Yeah, I mean, it, it has steadily grown in that manner. And yeah, I, I don't know, man. It's uh, it's something that we're really just kind of winging. And I know that's not the most professional way to do things sometimes, but just given the access to resources that we do have, I mean, we're we're always constantly balancing what we can afford to do. Yeah, And, exactly. you know, the priority lies in the merchandise. And so until more of that merchandise sells, we kind of have to just sit and be patient waiting to get some of that money back. I mean, everything we've sunk into the album itself, this is by far the highest budget album we've ever worked on. Mm-hmm. And we really only intend on going up from there. So hopefully the trajectory continues because so far it's pretty favorable. I mean, breaking even, well, breaking even, but getting back half your money on an album before it even comes out. I mean, it's kind mm-hmm. of unheard of in this industry. So we're very lucky to have the fans and the supporters that we do that want to see us succeed and put that into tangible action. You know, they don't just click like on Facebook and say, oh, I'm doing my part. <laughs> you know? Well, it is a very polished album and I think uh, people want to, or they do respond to that. Yeah, I'd agree with that too. I mean, granted, don't get me wrong, like I was saying, coming from like a black metal background, I'm used mm-hmm. to hearing like lo-fi trash albums and seeing them blow up. So, but with power metal, you can't really, you can't really play those cards. No, it just seems the sound wouldn't work. No. I mean, I think it'd be funny to do a lo-fi trash, you know, power metal album, but <laughs> we'll say, we'll save it for some like comedic bonus track or something. You could have like satirical tracks or something like that, kind of poking fun at other genres. I mean, we're, we're likely to do it. We've already have, we have demos of songs that are like that and we're, we're just hanging on to them until there's a little bit more room for comedy. Right now, there's there's still a need for actual content. Yeah, I think as the catalog expands, we can we can start integrating a lot more shits and giggles into the stuff that we do because I mean it's fun, man. We enjoy doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now, we're working on covers for our backers, and like we just did a speed metal cover of a Candlemass song, and it's like, you know, to me, it's hilarious. But once we polish it off, you know, if you didn't know Candlemass, you'd think it was one of our original songs, right? Interesting. Uh, what's the title of that track called? Uh, we're doing Bewitched by Candlemass. Bewitched? Okay, sweet. Yeah, or the the spooky dookie, you know, the music video they have where it's just like the old shitty VHS and they're just like, yeah. <laughs> you are bewitched. And it's, yeah, it's, it's hilarious, you know, taking a doom metal song and speeding it up by by over twofold, you know, over doubling the speed. Yeah. Just that the, We'll sit to that kind of comedy for now. You guys say that you are sorry. You've said that you take some inspiration from Magic the Gathering. Um, I've been a fan for fuck the better part of like twenty five years. I haven't played in a few years, but um, in Calgary, have you ever played any tournaments or have you gone to any Magic bars or anything? That sounds weird. Magic bars. Yeah, Magic bars. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know it doesn't I mean. sound weird because I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, 
Yeah, shout out to Broken City. Back in the day, mm-hmm. we used to uh, used to go down there every Sunday, and we would do um, we would do magic tournaments there, mm-hmm. uh, drinking and drafting, and it was fun. Like we really got to a point where we were doing it so regularly that it became like its own thing. We'd we'd play like booze touch. Anytime mm-hmm. you get damaged by a creature, you got to take a sip, you know. And by the end of it, we're just hammered. Um, so I I haven't done much in Calgary. I know Century Box was always really. Um, welcoming of the ideas the stupid ideas that i had but where, mm-hmm. where i really actually made a big impact with that was in edmonton my time living there we were um there was a bar called filthy mcnasty's on white ave and uh we do magic sundays there and it was like a riot because i mean growing up playing that game yeah probably for the better part of like 25 years mm-hmm. um you know i was a nerd i was an awkward kid i was shy i, I was fat i had horrible acne and I would just go to the comic book shop because it was the only place I felt normal and mm-hmm. accepted, right? And, um, you know, that sense of community really kind of blended into heavy metal and really kind of explained a lot of things that, you know, why we strive for what we strive for using nerd culture and the fans that we have. Like, yeah, most of them are fucking nerds because mm-hmm. those are my people. Like, those are, those are the people I get along with most and have the most in common with. And so... And then when, when we'd play, you know, you'd have these nerds coming out that maybe do not have as much social activities. You know, they, they work, they go home, they play video games, they go to bed, go to work the next morning. So having a social outlet where they're out at a bar, the bar is packed with their kind of people that they get along with. Other people want to get involved because it looks like so much fun. There was a point where we did a tournament where I had hired five strippers, one for each color. Nice. And, and then they would go, and this was like during like a sanctioned tournament, like, you know, guys were trying to get into the Grand Prix winning and all that stuff, <laughs> big prizes. And then, and then the, the deal was for five bucks, you can buy a lap dance for your opponent during a match. And <laughs> so I got, like, I've got like photos of these girls like on the table, butthole in this nerd's face. And he's like, no, I'm trying to play the game, <laughs> you know, and, and it was hilarious and it was fun and everyone had a blast and. You know, those those kind of memories and situations like I'll, I'll never forget those kind of things. Those are those are worth a thousand, you know, drunken nights out or whatever kind of shenanigan stories that we'd have. Yeah. Uh, have you stayed current in uh, with magic? I haven't over the past five years. But... So only in the digital sense, uh, I started playing Magic Arena and now I, mm-hmm. I stream it every Tuesday on Twitch. And, um, you know, it's it's just one of those things where, like, I use it as a time to really just kind of bring back some of those habits Mm -hmm. every time i get damaged i take a drink and uh you know just kind of like yelling at the person on the other side of the screen that can never hear me but just kind of you know bringing back some of the antics that we really enjoyed and and the viewers really enjoy that too because it's not a serious thing i'm not striving to be the best there ever was i just really Mm -hmm. enjoy playing the game i also like how you have like your metal tracks playing on in the background yeah, me too. Except for I got my first copyright strike the other day, so <laughs> I need oh, really? to uh, I need to sort out how to get around that because otherwise they'll uh, they'll destroy your channel. It seems like that's something to. It's kind of silly to be angry over. If somebody was advertising my music, I'd be happy. Most people think that way. The labels and those that are getting paid the most for it do not. I still feel like it would direct traffic their way if they want to purchase the music. It's not like you're you know, putting out your own album with their music on it. For, for those who can't see, right, because there's no video, I'm just shrugging right now. I'm just shrugging because this is just the nature of the industry, the evolution of 
the way things are going. I mean, it used to be you could, you know, clip tracks and use mm-hmm. samples and there were so many things you can do creatively and it, and it inspired people to want to look into it. I mean, like I grew up listening to a lot of Wu-Tang and, mm-hmm. you know, the fucking majority of all their music is just sampled from other things. Like that was the nature of old school hip hop. Mm-hmm. And that to me made me want to go and find out who are these blues artists, who are these jazz artists, who are these, you know, who are all these different things that they're sampling. I now want to dig into their catalogs and I, I want to get deeper into it. And now the best that we can do is basically just cover something and, you know, hope that that inspires people to want to check them out. Because for the most part, I mean, other than our, other than our crowd selected covers, you know, most of the covers that we do, we do them because these are bands we grew up loving and listening to and it's not like they need our help for exposure but the reality is if one ravenous fan gets into Candlemas because of our cover that's a win for me because i fucking love Candlemas and i Mm -hmm. want them to be doing their thing for as long as they fucking possibly can so you know to me it's helping and it's contributing and it's thanking but to labels and to those that really profit off this stuff it's stealing and Mm -hmm. that's really the one of the biggest pain points in uh in the music industry right now i feel like for the most part um like metal musicians and metal fans are uh, equally supportive of each other and they would prefer to have that kind of sharing that creative mentality where you know everything is for the benefit of everyone else um i guess the reason i'm saying this is because you see the the attitude at metal shows and everyone's there to have a good time enjoying all the bands there's like no disrespect and that's one of the things i love about the crowd yeah it's honestly aside from key niches that are like the toxic part because anything that exists has a toxic part mm-hmm. but um yeah i completely agree with that statement and and it's, the thing is that even the artists themselves don't care right mm-hmm. you know we're friends with aether realm they, they played on our album you know we're friends with unleash the archers they don't give a shit if we play their music on a stream for example but you know it's not up to them and that's mm-hmm. the reality it's up to their management it's up to their label and and it's really it's just the algorithms too the algorithms just catch the sound waves They'll, they'll fucking trample all over it and they'll jump right on you. And that's something that's not even within their control. You know, they can say, yeah, go ahead. Here's a letter saying you can use our stuff. It doesn't matter. Unless it's coming specifically from the label, the people that actually own the rights to the music. Mm-hmm. It, uh, yeah, it's not really worth much. It seems like in some circumstances it could be very slimy. It is. I mean, it's self-cannibalizing too because the reality is the music industry kind of gets in its own way most of the time. And that's why we appreciate a lot of the DIY nature of what we do. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, other than drawing the actual artwork, like I design all of our merch, I do all of our layouts, I run all of our ads and I, I I try to keep as much control as I can, Mm -hmm. not because it's an egotistical thing, but because it's, it's to prevent others from having a say in what is permitted and what isn't. So when someone contacts us saying, can we use your music? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes here's proof here's a letter fucking whatever just so if anything ever got in your way you could appeal it at least because the reality to us is we we want you to be sharing and spreading music i mean half the time growing up when when i'd spend time with my friends we'd mostly just spend time showing each other new bands mm-hmm. bands that we discovered through whatever and and that was an amazing time for us we loved it we loved getting into new music and expanding our horizons and we didn't have spotify so you know we'd we hopefully have albums from whoever it was, or at least around then Napster started coming around. But really, like that that was kind of the, the beginning of the end, is that yes, exposure and social media and all this kind of stuff 
it was great for getting out there. I love that mm-hmm. I get messages from fans across the globe that I never would have connected with otherwise. But at the same time, you know, coupled with oversaturation and just the the predatory nature of it, yeah, it's super slimy. Because then mm-hmm. anything you do that could p- be potentially perceived as making money, you're you're the enemy, and it's 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 scary and it's dangerous and it it sucks because one slip up could just mean the end of your channel, your page, your content. You know, people that have spent their lifetimes building up a fan base and a following are just like, nope, you're gone. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and that's why it's really important to have that DIY aspect because really building any sort of business that is reliant on other people's platforms is, I don't know, it, it's obviously the better way to do it, but it's the more dangerous and more censored way to do it. Mm-hmm. I would say like things like Spotify, um, Instagram, Facebook, like they obviously have their places in society like they're definitely tools but i think when it starts to come like uh, to censorship and choosing what you're allowed to go on it's kind of frustrating as probably an artist because there's some things you're allowed to do and some things you're just not yeah i mean especially as an artist like true art is in the sense like you're you're always inspired by something else there's no such thing as an original riff anymore Mm -hmm. you know the reality is you want to do things with the people that have inspired you. You want to show them that you love their music. You want to cover their songs. You want to, you know, throw in clips. You want to basically do whatever because the reality is people do those things. I mean, for the most part, people do those things because they love those artists, not because they're trying to ride their coattails. Mm-hmm. And it's it's painful when you see it be the opposite where it is, you know, just riding coattails and just trying to jump on the hype train kind of thing. And it's... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it really devalues the art. I feel like video gaming is something where there's a lot of, um, not just imitation, but straight up stealing of ideas. And it's not at all reflected, in my opinion, by the metal community. Yeah, not for the most part, not by the fans, at least. By the artists, I mean, it's it's hard to tell. I mean, I think at this point, you know, Metal Archives has like over 170,000 bands listed on mm-hmm. their website. So it's just like, at some point, you know, you're going to, the, the reality is anything that's original these days is just fucking weird and you know props to them you can be avant-garde but um for us you know for trying to maintain consistency we really are just taking a, our favorite artists and our favorite music into a blender and trying to create something out of it right mm. no one gets mad at you for using bananas and strawberries and mangoes like this is just bananas and strawberries and mangoes mashed together i'm like well yeah that's what a fucking smoothie is dude <laughs> like that's exactly what we're trying to create here. Just as long as it tastes good, shut the fuck up. Yeah, and it's ours anyways. Yeah. <laughs> um, back to your al- album here. Did COVID impact the production at all or the release? Yeah, COVID has impacted literally everything. <laughs> down to the writing, down to the everything, man. This has been, you know, an unprecedented experience where mm-hmm. we don't get to live our lives, right? Like our first album came out. We did Western Canadian dates for like headlining for the album support and then we did a tour with Ailstorm, and it was fucking incredible and every night was sold out and you're like great trajectory is awesome things are looking good and bam you don't get to leave your house yeah that was like pretty much a few months after our first album came out so what choice did we have other than Mm -hmm. to write and we had to write remotely for the most part you're allowed Mm -hmm. only a certain number of households that's why jake and i spent a lot of time together we're the only ones allowed to be around each other the rest Mm -hmm. of the guys we had to do everything by via skype and you know, figuring out like that's why I, I technically had a streaming setup without really knowing it, 
because I had my guitar running through my DAW and my mics and the cameras, and I needed all that to communicate with my bandmates. So mm-hmm. inadvertently, that's kind of also what led to the whole streaming thing. Yeah, COVID has impacted literally everything. Even now, we still get rumor messages from people, well, it looks like they're going to another lockdown. Your shows are going to be canceled. I'm like, well, what are you basing this on? They'll show me some random tweet mm-hmm. from a random person. I'm like, dude, could you fuck off? Like, I have enough anxiety about all this already. Like, if those shows don't happen, I am in financial ruin. So mm-hmm. do me a favor. Don't send me anything unless you see it on, like, a government website. Unless exactly. the venues announce they're shutting down. Like, just keep it to yourself. Because the last thing we, re- we need right now is people propagating more bullshit and panic. Like, life fucking sucks right now. The best <laughs> thing we can do for each other is not create a fucking safety bubble, fine, but at least try not to propagate more bullshit while people exactly. are just in the process of figuring out their own goddamn lives. I feel like part of the downfall of COVID, and obviously there's lots of downfalls, but um, when it comes to people spreading fear and saying stuff that isn't true, it's just like... We already hear enough of this from the news, from the authorities, I guess, in one way or another. We don't need random people on Facebook speaking in their echo chambers on their random web, uh, on their random group pages about how this is going to affect us in the future. Just cross the bridge when the time comes. Yeah, or just burn it. Just burn the bridge mm-hmm. altogether. Yeah, don't worry exactly. about it. <laughs> Did you guys ever practice over Zoom? Never full rehearsals, just writing sessions. Um, okay. I feel like rehearsing over Zoom would be a nightmare with latency issues and having to mm-hmm. do tech support with five different guys with five different setups i'd rather save myself from that <laughs> probably a good decision <laughs> yeah I, I used to do tech support jobs and the last thing i want to do is like, okay you turn this on okay is this plugged in did you turn it off did you turn it on have you tried restarting your computer is your guitar plugged all the way in like i'm just i got enough on my mind right now <laughs> that's fair understandable um on all three of your releases you have the same character on the front of your album uh who is he and is he somewhat your mascot or yeah 100 percent um this is this is part of our iron maidenisms even though i'm like in the maiden versus judas priest uh argument i'm a 1000 percent judas priest guy uh but that's that's one of our iron maidenisms i've always loved the idea of mascots i mean most most projects i've had have had a mascot um mm. it's it's something to connect with visually, right? It's something that when you see it, you're like, oh, that's Ravenous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, part of it is branding, part of it is marketing, but then part of it just becomes the fun of what we can do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, this is why we have single artwork too, right? And every single features that character. His name's Edgar, by the way. I mean, we yes. needed, obviously it's an Edgar Allan Poe thing and a raven and, and all that jazz, but, you know, then it's also funny to us because that's our Eddie. Right, you got Eddie from Iron Maiden. That's already, yeah. And um, yeah, like it's it's just one of those things that it it helps for us, right? Like you look at the beer cans, you see them on there. You you know you look at any of the artwork, you see them on there. Even on the chopsticks, you know the logos on there. So it, to us, it's it's something that's our own and not in the way that's really that unique. Like it's a bird skull. There's a mm-hmm. lot of things with bird skulls on them, but even now it gets to the point where people see a bird skull somewhere and they're like, oh, ravenous. This is a ravenous beer ad for this other company. And we're like, oh, it's just a bird skull, you know? And then culturally, as the fans have been growing and building, you know, everyone cacaws at us all the time. I don't know where it really came. I want to say it actually came from Tyson Boyd from Starlight Room. I don't yeah. really, I want to say that because then he's like, oh, ravenous, hey, cacaw. And we're like, yeah, 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 whatever. But then it just, it caught on and it kept growing and growing. And 
you know, like even with the, I think it was the latest Rick and Morty episode, you know, like, sorry, do you watch the show? Am I spoiling it for you? Uh, no, you're not spoiling it. I don't watch it. I know what it's about though. Okay. But you know, it's just like, he's got two crows as sidekicks and there's a lot of cawing and crow shit going on. And even my buddies were like, dude, have you seen the new ravenous episode of Rick and Morty? And like, and it's funny to me, right? It's not an ego boost or some, you know, crazy thing. I'm just like, yeah, it's funny that people Mm -hmm. associate crows and ravens and corvids you know with us and it, and it's fun and and we love it and we enjoy it and we want that to continue to grow so yes that is 100 our mascot his name is edgar he is on everything and uh we love seeing how different artists that we work with interpret him you know we mm-hmm. could work with the same guy and just let it be the same consistent imagery but we love working with various artists so mm-hmm. we get we get the fun of seeing different depictions of our main character and that was the thing for me with even comic books, right? Like growing up reading a lot of comics, mm-hmm. I loved seeing how different artists would draw and illustrate the different characters. It it was fun for me to see. Well, and then you can look back and uh, let's take, for example, Eddie from Iron Maiden. You look back at any of his, um, I guess, adventures and they're all incredible in their own right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even that uh, writing on the wall song that came out, incredible animated video with all mm-hmm. the different kind of Eddies and all the little Easter eggs and stuff. And, I hope we can get to that point one day where it's just like, oh, yeah, this is conquering the sun, Edgar. And that's hubris, Edgar. And oh, that's that's March of Hunger, Edgar. And I think the only one that doesn't have it is the Claws of the Law because we're just so intent on, like, <laughs> ripping off the White Claw label. The song's about White Claw. <laughs> so the shirts and everything, it just looks like a White Claw can. And I think that's the only thing that doesn't feature him. That's awesome. I like that. That's a really cool idea. I've always had a blast with like Ben's, um, like Disturbed, they have their mascot as well. Um, Avenged Sevenfold, I think, has one as well. I'm not a fan of their music too much, but it's cool that they have those ideas. Agreed. So, why a bird skull? Oh, should probably get into the how the band name came about then. So, my initials are R-A-V, Robert Antonius Voltaire. R-A Voltaire. Uh, that's why everyone calls me Rav. And um, I can't remember where, where I, I think I was at Dickens actually in Calgary and um, the bouncer, John Hunter, we were chatting. I'm like, man, I'm like ravenous right now. I'm fucking needing a shawarma or something. So hungry. He's like, you're ravenous. Eh? Eh? I'm like, ah, very funny. It kind of just that awkward moment of silence. I'm like, it's actually a really good band name. And he's just like, if you start a band called ravenous, I'm going to punch you in the face. So I was just like, Still a good band name. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, maybe that's probably the most egotistical part of this entire band is like, yes, my name is in the band name. But like, other than that, that's that's kind of what it all came up. So with with having a logo, um, while I was backpacking through Europe, one of the people I stayed with, um, his name is Styrbjorn. And he's this seven foot Swedish, you know, Viking lives out on a farm in the middle of nowhere. Like, his address is just farm number one, Sweden. Like, <laughs> that's his address. That's when I, when I mail him things. And um, and his wife, Anna Maria, she uh, she does, like, graphic design stuff for, like, um, motocross and, like, NASCAR and shit. Like, she does, like, really cool decals for for these companies, and that, that becomes their logos. So I was kind of talking about the idea and just, like, this is all where, like, <clears throat> Ravenous was like a seed of an idea, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we had like one demo that I made at home. And um, 
yeah, before I left, she kind of surprised me. She's like, hey, I know this isn't really a thing, but like, you know, a little going away present. I made you a logo. I made you like an emblem and like the band logo. Mm-hmm. And to this day, we use that emblem and that band logo because like it's it was so much more than just, hey, thanks for like helping out this idea. Mm-hmm. It, it was just an, an example of that Swedish hospitality where where. You know, they they wanted to make it a memorable experience, but on top of it, like they wanted to give me something that I would always remember them by. And, mm-hmm. you know, every time I look at our logo, that that's a thing. And people are like, oh, why do you have this? Why do you have the, the stripe across the logo? It doesn't make sense. Blah, blah blah. I'm like, I don't fucking care because some person took the time out of their day to do something so amazing. And, yeah. and it works. It, it works for everything that we do. It's like you see it from a distance. You know what it is. And mm-hmm. that to me is worth everything, everything, absolutely everything. And it just was the beginning of the idea that like, yes, there are people that support this idea and maybe it's not such a bad idea after all. Well, I think having somebody do that for you um, after meeting them is totally different than just hiring a graphic designer and saying, hey, make a logo for me. Totally. Like I was living in their house for like three or four weeks while I was just backpacking around and I go jump on a train, go to another country, go to a festival, come back to the farm. Mm-hmm. And like you know, sit there with his two dogs, just listening to one of the ten thousand records he has, drinking like fucking weird beers, weird beers. And they had they had this sausage called Grin Korv, and it's like it means dead man's dick. And I'm like, oh, good <laughs> sausage. <laughs> so yeah, like experiences like that, you know. So yeah, technically we didn't even choose the logo. Really, they they kind of chose it for us. And I was just like, mm-hmm. yes, this is what it is, without a doubt. That's awesome. And how did they feel when you said, look, this is now our official logo. It's been on everything. I think they kind of expected it. I think they were yeah. just like, hey, we, we did this thing for you. You're going to fucking yeah. use it. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I'm like, cool. Like, slip it in my back pocket and never use it again. They're like, no, no it, it was a thing immediately. I was like scanning it and doing all that stuff immediately and had it all ready to go. It's hard to tell a seven-foot monster that you're not going to use the logo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, monster. he's more like an ogre. He's not a monster, but he's just he's like an ogre, you know? hugs that crush your bones <laughs> when he gets drunk things break like i i love the guy I, I can't wait to go back there man that's it's been on my bucket list as soon as all this nonsense is over to try to find a way back because you know i'm not losing inspiration for the music i don't think any mm-hmm. of us really are we're actually feeling incredible about all this and mm-hmm. we're inspired to continue to do more but there's something about those treks those pilgrimages pilgrimages wow that's a word but something about those adventures that really just they, they rewire your brain in a certain way and they really begin to make you feel grateful about the things you do have at home, you know, especially when you lose some of those comforts and you need to be thinking on your feet and just kind of almost in survival mode. Um, it's, it's a really awesome experience that I think enhances art for a lot of people and really comfort is like the death of art. So try to keep myself as uncomfortable as possible. <laughs> ah, fair enough. And like when you're traveling, when you get to meet new people, uh, if you're looking for it, you often experience a sense of humility. And I think that's important too. Especially with Swedes, because the first thing most of them would say, like, you're very American. And we're like, what does that mean? They're like, it means you don't shut the fuck up. <laughs> you talk too much. I even learned how to speak Swedish, or at least like for most of the basic sentences. And it's like, hey, who are they? Jag är ravioli. Var är systembolag? That's how you say, where's the liquor store? And that's like, yeah, I just win them over with that. Just ask them where the liquor store is. They love it. <laughs> Everything works out. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, the EH in your band name, it stands for Eternal Hunger. Is that part of an overarching narrative, or is that something um, that you've kind of done away with? 
So, um, the, the first EP was called Eternal Hunger. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it was kind of part of the thing where it was like, hey, ravenous, yeah, you're hungry all the time and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, it really was actually more of a technicality for us. We, we searched up, okay, are there any bands with the name Ravenous? It's mm-hmm. the first thing you do when you come up with a band name. Look it up. Are there any other bands with that name? I typically use the Metal Archives as my, you know, my, my source of authority because mm-hmm. if there's a band that exists, it's fucking on there. So we took a look. They're all inactive. There's a ton of them, but they're all inactive. So, like, they had all split up. We're like, okay, mm-hmm. we should be able to use this then. We do our thing. We put out our EP. At some point, I think it was during the first album's release cycle, um, Ravenous from Austria reactivated. And they had they had amazing, like, death thrash band from Austria. They put out one album in 1990, and that was it. And they decided to become active again. They were, like, playing fe- major festivals. So we were like, fuck. A, we're screwed, and B, realistically, if they took any sort of legal action, I mean, we'd kind of be fucked as well. Mm-hmm. So we decided, okay, well, we need to put an affix on this. And we were thinking, like, Ravenous AD, Ravenous X, you know, whatever it would be, and we were, we were going through those ideas. I'm like, well, why don't we do EH? Mm-hmm. You know, Eternal Hunger is the name of the first EP. It makes sense. <coughs> it's an affix that's different. There's always something AD, something mm-hmm. X, something BC. Like, it, it, it's almost cliché. So you're like, what if our affix is EH? Because then not only can it be, yo, okay, eternal hunger, but like mm-hmm. we're we're Canadian. This is how you identify that we're the Canadian ravenous. Like, oh, it's ravenous. I didn't eh? even think of that. That's hey, hilarious. man, you playing ravenous, eh? I'm like, yeah, my band's called Ravenous, eh? And it's it, it's funny to us, and it's it's funny to everyone that kind of gets it. And most people don't click on on a lot of those things. They're just like, oh, it's just ravenous mm-hmm. EH. But yeah, like as as far as like, that's why I say like. You know, verbally, when we talk about things, like, it's just ravenous, it's ravenous, it's ravenous. Mm-hmm. But if you go on Spotify, it's ravenous EH, because otherwise you pull up the other artist. Mm-hmm. And that's that kind of boils down, again, to technicality and marketing, where it's, we don't want our music to accidentally fall into someone else's channel. We don't want to kind of get buried within these things. It's like, this is us. As far as any legal branding, any of that kind of stuff, ravenous EH. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for, for the fun of it, yeah, ravenous EH. And nobody bothers with the age. They're just like, yeah, we're going to the Ravenous show. <laughs> I like that. I didn't think about that at all. It went right over my head. <laughs> <laughs> it's because actual Canadians don't think of it. We, we we so seldomly say a, like, it's basically like a Newfoundlander thing, isn't it? Like an East Coaster thing? You know what? I say it a lot. You say it a lot? Yeah. And well, it's, it's not... Then it's not shame on you to... for not getting it. <laughs> shame. Where's I think my it's belt? even worse now. <laughs> oh, shit. That's hilarious. Um, how did you guys get partnered with New Level? I used to work for them. Fair enough. That's I used easy. to do sales for them. Um, New Level was like the seminal metal brewery. I mean, even they don't really go hard on it. Like it's it's mm-hmm. kind of like a bonus because they even they realized if you're trying to sell beer and you put heavy metal involved in it. Like people get squirmy. You know, we live in a we live in the Texas of Canada and we're surrounded by a lot of very conservative, very interesting individuals i'll say you gotta remember to be nice on these interviews we live around a lot of interesting individuals that are pretty conservative and you know you say you have like a berserker beer or a wizard beer and they're they're weird about it so you know they they may not tout it as much but like 
the guys that run it, like they're metalheads, right? Mm -hmm. They love going to Psycho. They love going to MDF. You know, they're hugely supportive of every genre of metal and they love working with bands. So it kind of just became a natural thing when I, when I spoke with them. I'm like, listen, we got a new album coming out. And we've had this idea in mind for like two years. Basically, mm -hmm. As soon as COVID happened, they're like, we have no use for sales, guys. You can't go anywhere. You can't sell shit. So see ya. Um, so we've had this idea in the works forever. And it wasn't until now that it finally became a feasible idea again. And, you know, we have a lot of friends that have their own beers. There's the Vox and Hops guys out in Montreal. They got their whole podcast. And that's fucking great. I love that there's just, you know, a, a positive drinking culture associated with it because mm -hmm. it's its own nerd culture in a way, right? Like, to me, that's another subgenre of nerd is beer nerds. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Unleash the Archers has their beer and Stryker had their beer and a bunch of other friends have theirs. So to us, it was kind of like a natural progression. We have this thing available to us. We have the resources. There's people that are willing to help us do this. And for me, like I, I do graphic design. So I designed the label and I, I got that all ready to go. And I'm super proud of it because it wasn't until I saw the can. I'm like, that's a fucking sexy beer can. Like that's that's a nice can where if I saw that on a shelf, I'd be like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. So, you know, and and it's just another milestone for us. We're like, yes, you know, we had our first EP. We had our first album. We had our first tour. We had our first major tour. Uh, you know, this becomes another milestone where it's like we have our own beer and I get free beer, which is like, <laughs> where is the where is this going wrong? So far, I see nothing but positives. I don't know, man. When I see like uh, beer from metal bands or whoops, or beer with like pretty cool artwork on the can or the bottle, that's the first thing i try i don't know why people would shy away from that dude that's how i used to buy albums i found out about rhapsody because i was walking through the music store i'm like well there's a dragon on this album cover i'm gonna buy it i found yeah. out about hypocrisy because i saw their virus album cover and i was just like mm -hmm. this reminds me of spawn and fucking symbiotes and everything i'm gonna buy this album holy shit this album's incredible so like there used to be an element of of a visual appeal because you didn't have the means of being like I'm going to look this up on Spotify. Blah, I hate it. Because mm -hmm. the other side, too, is once you bought the album, you're like, fuck, I bought this album. Like, I'm kind of committed. Yeah. Like, there's no return. <laughs> you know? So I'm kind of I kind of have to either like it or trash it. And, you know, I was a pretty cheap kid. I don't want to throw away 15 bucks. Like, so I learned oh, to love have... a lot of music. I bought Deicide. And I'm like, ah, what the fuck is this? So I was like <laughs> 14. And, you know, I'm like, well, I guess I'll listen to it. And then the more I listen to it, I'm like, okay, I guess I love death metal now, you know? And... Did you know that HMV actually uh, allowed you to listen to the album before taking it home? Yeah, I was super lazy as a kid where I was just like, I don't want to talk to people because I was I was an awkward kid. Yeah. And also I was just like, I don't want to sit here just listening to this fucking music. Like, I want to go home. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want to be in public. So I just go in and just browse and be like, hey, this one. Good. Bye. Yes. Yeah, you need a bag? Yeah. No, fuck off. <laughs> Run kind away. Of awkward standing there for an hour or two just listening to music. Yeah, exactly. Like, it wasn't a by. comfortable situation. They didn't have like, <laughs> no. a sweet lounge. You couldn't like socialize with people, you know? Like, I remember once there was like, you know, I, like, I was 14 at the time. There was like a cute girl listening to something beside me. And I like, you know, look at her and she looks at me and we kind of smile at each other. And then she looks at the album I'm listening to and it's just got like, you know, dead babies on it or whatever. And she just like clearly turns away. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, this is, this is life. Like I'm a metalhead. I'm not expecting anything positive to come out of this. I just want to get my fucking music and go home and enjoy it. And that's the moment she thought you were a demon. Dude, hundred percent. This is before I had a split tongue. <laughs> yeah. So what brought that on? I did need to ask you. As in, why did I get it? Yeah. Uh, when I was 20 or 21, I was, um, hanging out with a lot of circus folk. A lot of uh, performers and stuff like that. Two of them actually are pretty famous now, which is really nice to see. But um, 
they had a friend visiting from Vegas. She had a split tongue. We ended up making out. It was the greatest experience I've ever had in my entire life. And I was just like, one day I'm going to get this done. Then five years later, the opportunity presented itself. The guy I was living with at the time was a professional body mod artist. He's like, you want to do it? I'm like, yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. That was literally the, that, that was the extent of my thought process. It was about a week recovery of just drinking like smoothies and soups, blended soups. Mm-hmm. So no solids. And then by the time the swelling goes down, you end up, you know, I think basically like by week two, you're fully healed. And now I have two independently controllable appendages in my mouth that is just like, it's fun. I love it. I love everything about it. The best part about it, not what you think. The best part about it is fucking <laughs> drinking with straws. It's like the, the greatest experience in the world. <laughs> just every straw becomes like a twirly straw in your mouth. It's awesome. Did it hurt? Yeah, fuck, of course it hurt, man. I cut my fucking tongue in half. It sucked. And the recovery sucked. I was miserable the whole time. But whatever, like, it's it's done now. I mean, shit, I mean, you look at my tattoos, and I got the full Judas Priest painkiller cover from my neck to my ass. And it's like, yeah, it hurt. Most things in life do hurt. Existing fucking hurts. We're like me-seeks. Oh, you don't watch fucking Rick and Morty. <laughs> Existence is pain to most humans. The least you can do is have something to show for it. That's true. So does that get in, uh, in the way of singing at all? Not at all. Not one bit. I can still roll my R's if I want to pretend to be Joaquim from Sabaton. I can still do all the different ranges. I can still do my gutter rolls and thrash metal stuff too. Like it, it hasn't improved anything. It's, <laughs> it's just like a non-secular, you know? Like it, it doesn't involve, doesn't involve anything. It, it just mm-hmm. is. But it's helped with live performances. It's helped with photos. I mean, shit, I ended up in Rolling Stone magazine on the second page in Germany just for having two tongues. I wish it was for my music. Don't get me wrong. I was like, (laughs) we got so big in Germany that, like, we're featured in Rolling Stones. But, um, yeah, it was like, I think it was um, my buddy Aaron from Annihilator. He was on tour in Germany. He, like, stops at whatever gas station to fill up, flipping through the magazines. And he even took a video of it. He's like, so we're on tour, tour vlog, and getting gas i grab a magazine who the fuck do i see on the second page fucking ravioli and it's just like the full page is just my picture tongue hanging out looking like a maniac and uh yeah and so it's it's led to a lot of fun positive experiences and it's becoming a lot more common now like my partner has it most of my friends have it if anything it's actually kind of weird like the my friends with one tongue are like the minority at this point (laughs) <laughs> that's crazy yeah. I've never met a single person with a split tongue well hey man you uh, come hang out anytime and you can ask all the weird questions you can't ask on air <laughs> <laughs> sounds good I appreciate that um, okay so back to your album again you guys are releasing here on um, on the 22nd on the 15th you have a release party what's all entailed with that Like, how do you guys get people hyped for the album mm. sorry taking more water um yeah the uh the release parties i don't know it's uh it's kind of a necessary evil actually so right now with the way things are going with concerts there's a lot of uncertainty based around Mm -hmm. it like it's a terrifying time to be someone who wants to tour i mean again relating to our friends and unleash the archers they got to go out and do this amazing festival the alcatraz festival in belgium they come back, they're ready to go, ready to go on their U.S. tour all across America. They get to the border. Nope, sorry, can't come in. Try again in a week. Mm. 
And it's like, cool, we just had to cancel five sold out shows. Um, huge financial impact to us, the other bands, the booking agents. And like, this is when people say like, has COVID affected things? I'm like, yes, mm -hmm. not just for us, but anybody related to us, anybody that comes into contact with us, it's affected them in some way. Mm -hmm. And shit rolls downhill. So, you know, like we can't even get vinyl printed, which we'd love to do. And it's like a two year wait for most of the major pressing plants. It was just like, well, we'll have a new album by then. So mm -hmm. it, it kind of becomes this thing where, yeah, it's it's all completely fucked. And I just lost my train of thought. What was the original question? Album release parties, right? Yeah, this is the ADHD yeah. kicking in. Um, so with that, like we have to do shows. I mean, shows are such a huge profit margin for us because, mm -hmm. you know, our fans buy our shit. The majority of people that are Ravenous fans, they already own everything. They, they pre-ordered the CD. They've pre-ordered the merch you know they've got their chopsticks and their spicy noodles they've got all the stuff so it's not about merch sales for them but it is about all the other people that come out to concerts that maybe don't know who we are haven't had a chance to see who we are and haven't experienced the show because mm -hmm. the reality again is the music is one thing and that's fine the real product is that concert that show that energy that connecting with them we win people over Constantly. And I mean, we've toured with Hammerfall, we've toured with Delane, we toured with Power Glove, toured with Striker, toured with Ailstorm. Mm -hmm. Every single time that we perform with these bands, we win new fans. We we earn these people's love and respect, and they want to support us because they're like, I wasn't expecting anything. I had no fucking clue who you were. I was just here to see the headliner. You put on an awesome show. Like, you, you've earned yourself a fan. Good job. Yep. That is hugely important. And that's something that will never really go away. Because, I mean, yeah, I guess we're in the, the TikTok nation where like 15 seconds of content can blow you up into the stratosphere and maybe call us old fashioned. But like, we love touring and it mm -hmm. kills us that we can't do it with any certainty or any control or any planning. No matter how much we have experience, the universe itself and just the world right now is set to fuck over musicians and we can't survive a single one of those blows. Mm -hmm. So with our shows coming up, we, you know, we're hesitant, but we have our local show. We got another one in Edmonton, nearby city, got the grant funding. That's it. Mm -hmm. Everything else is going to be online content. We're, we're, we're trying to switch everything to online content because not because we want to, but because in the space that we're in now, it's the mm -hmm. only sure thing we have. It's the only thing that gives us a chance to really get out there and do all this without risking taking a blow because right now I'm stocked up on merch. All of our merch gets printed online, drop shipping. I have zero stock usually. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's all just done on demand. So now that I have boxes upon boxes of merch so that I can do these shows, they need to happen. If not, these mm -hmm. just basically sit here and rust. Yeah. Get it? Metal band shirts. Um, so, you know, and we've lined up very strategic things. This Sunday, we have our beer release listening party. I mean, I guess this comes out after, but like, you know, we do the listening party. That's a mm -hmm. little time to like try to get some hype on the shows, get them promoted, etc. Then we do uh, October 9th. We go to Edmonton. We shoot the live DVD. We do that show. Hopefully it goes well. Then we move on to the next next week. Like, and that's why we have to plan this out week by week, because, you know, we do anything in a condensed spot. We're basically putting all of our eggs in one basket and mm -hmm. running the risk of all of it being canceled. At least at this point, if we do it this way, maybe just one at worst case scenario, will be canceled, or none of them, mm -hmm. hopefully. Um, by the time the album comes out, then the strict focus becomes online. Unless some major tour 
or like a huge show opportunity comes up and it's happening for sure that becomes it for live shows and there's an element of that where we're not playing every weekend you know people can maybe see us in their town once a year so they want to come out they want to see it because they enjoy the show and they know that they'll have to wait another year to see it again Mm -hmm. and then top that all off with the fact that like i cold call people like i hustle tickets and it's it's a lost art that you know maybe came from the early days of me doing shows but like there was no event bright ticketmaster whatever well, i mean there's ticketmaster but like you wouldn't have local shows on there like you do now so mm-hmm. you had to call people you had to go to other concerts and be like hey you like this band you'll fucking love my band come check this out um you know you go to anything really and you just you promote you promote the old school way and i'm still doing that and that's why we've we've yet to have a show that wasn't sold out because we put so much effort into it and because most of us are well traveled it doesn't really matter where we play we go to play Mm -hmm. in Kelowna I'll be cold calling people from Calgary and be like hey we're coming to play you want tickets yeah fucking e-transfer me I'll get pick them up at the door whatever it may be because that is the level of grind and hustle that is needed for success not just financial but for growth Mm -hmm. you know I even do referral programs at this point hey convince four of your friends to come to the show I'll pay for your ticket and there's like, all right, cool, yeah, here you go. And that's what you have to do because everything is hurting. Everyone is dying for a piece of the pie. And, you know, we're we're hungry dudes. <laughs> we're ravenous. We we want as much of that pie as we can get, and we realize we have to go out and get it ourselves. You guys do a lot of work to make sure that you guys are successful. That's incredible. A yeah. lot of drive. I mean, it's it's a full-time job in itself, which is why I'm now a full-time artist. I mean, this is a new development but it's only been a month that i've been only focusing on music and on online content and yeah it's it's interesting giving up a stable paying job but mm-hmm. it's also the the element where no one could ever tell me no at this point whatever i set my mind out to do i'm, I'm gonna do it so in your decision to go full-time artist um what were some of the things you considered and what's the scariest thing about it scariest thing about it is losing your salary and losing um health benefits really like you know especially for someone like me that relies heavily on mental health treatment and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I'm basically taking five years of medication and um, therapy and everything that I've worked on, on bettering myself and putting my brain in a stable place Mm -hmm. and now riding solo because I can't afford those things anymore. I can't afford my meds. I can't afford any of that stuff. And I, I have to be very conscious of that when living my life because I also become very manic and I'll be like, yeah, Last minute, I decided we're doing ravenous uh, umbrellas and uh, uh, cod pieces. And, uh, and and I have to kind of put myself in check and be like, hey, is this actually a good idea? Or am I just being manic right now and wanting to mm-hmm. just do something because I can't sit still? Um, so, yeah, that was that was the biggest fear. And really, the, the actual decisions was really just kind of seeing like throughout COVID. I hate mm-hmm. that this keeps coming up, but like throughout COVID, you know, times were tough. People were miserable some people found themselves in that process Mm -hmm. and other people just destroyed themselves. And I got lucky where I really kind of found myself, what I was into, what I wanted in life. And it it really just boiled down to music, right? Like Mm -hmm. I love performing. I love music. This is what makes me happy. No amount of money can really, um, can really change that in any way. So I need to be in this industry. And Mm -hmm. so in making that choice, you know, I looked at, how much I had and what was coming up and who I had that, that was supporting me in the decision. And I had to go through all of that. And and ultimately it was my partner that was just like, Hey, you're fucking bumming me out. Like mm. I can't even, 
I can't, like we were in LA and she was like, I can't even really enjoy this trip because you're just like bumming me out because of all your work bullshit. You need to quit your job. Like you need to just focus on art. I don't give a shit. I'll help you. But like, mm -hmm. and that was, that was ultimately the last, it was kind of not like a last straw, but it was the last confirming moment that I needed to be like, okay, I, I really should be doing this. And it's terrifying. It's fucking scary as shit. You know, all the interviews in the world, all the reviews, all the pre-orders, all of that, it's, it's all fine and dandy. By mm -hmm. next month, it's all gone. So where do I go from there, right? And mm -hmm. obviously, I could just start writing the next album, but the reality is, you know, we're on like a two-year release cycle. So <coughs> we got to find ways to occupy that space in between. And mm -hmm. that's what we're going to be focusing on and trying to find ways to diversify. And yeah, it's, uh, it's a scary thing. So to any of your friends that actually do it, like, you really need supportive friends and fans and not just mm -hmm. verbally supportive you need financially supportive people i get lucky that people like what we do and they want to buy it and they want they want to get their hands on it but mm -hmm. you know if you don't have that my my best recommendation to people is just try to go part-time in a job and slowly shift the transition like from one to the other mm -hmm. so that you're not stuck in a situation like mine where you know you're, you're basically fucked if anything goes wrong Mm -hmm. and right now i haven't had to pull any safety nets but uh the other day like my car was totaled and so it's just like all right well i guess that i just don't have a car anymore you know if i had a job i'd be like fuck it i'll just go buy a new one now yeah. i'm just like cool i guess i don't have a car anymore now i need to adapt my life accordingly and mm -hmm. that's just the nature of being an artist in somebody's um search to support you and ravenous where's the best place to find your music and where's the best place to find your beer so the beer the beer is less of a support thing the beer is is for you guys we make absolutely nothing on the beer like zero profit okay. that that was a fun to have the brewery wanted to help us um so please just buy it for your own enjoyment because it's fucking delicious <laughs> beer it's really good you can drink 20 of them and not feel gross like i love this beer um but uh, as far as actual support, really, realistically, Bandcamp has been the saving grace. Um, okay. During COVID, they they announced their whole Bandcamp Friday thing. I think it was sometime mm -hmm. last year, where they were like, the first Friday of every month, whatever people buy off of Bandcamp, we're not going to take a cut. Mm -hmm. That money goes directly to us, like straight into my bank account. Mm -hmm. That From that bank account, it goes straight to the printer that pays for the shit, ships it off, and then gets it to you. So we've set it up in a way where the supply chain makes sense. But mm -hmm. that's also the best way to support us because people would joke to be like, oh, I'm going to put your album on repeat on Spotify and like make you guys rich. I'm like, yep. well, it doesn't work that way. A, you're one unique listener. So by the time yep. you listen to the whole album once, it just counts as one play. The yep. rest doesn't count for anything. It's just you listening mm -hmm. to it and enjoying it. Mm -hmm. And then the other side is they pay 0.04 cents per play. So 100 yep. plays is four cents. Yeah, you're going to need a lot of plays to have any substantial income. And even then, it's not substantial. I, I've had friends that have had millions of plays on Spotify, and they get their little $100 check or $1,000 check. You're like, mm -hmm. it's a nice feeling. It's a good, nice to have. It's not mm -hmm. going to support you as an artist and keep you up there, right? So mm -hmm. realistically, the best way to support the band is through the Bandcamp page because that's purchasing the music, the merch, whatever it may be. And then to support me, realistically, is the Twitch subscribers. Like, you know, I, I see where friends of mine like the guys in unleash the archers and stuff have quit their day jobs and just focus mm -hmm. full-time on streaming because that's the reality that is a platform where you know those that want to support you can just throw shower coins on you as you're in the arena of entertainment and mm -hmm. you know you actually get to see some of that 
it's not something that's just there for exposure because really exposure box is is like toxic to us at this point Mm -hmm. well rav it's been an awesome chat today yeah i had a blast talking with you and this is uh so far my longest one oh yeah dude um is there anything else you'd like to say to any of the listeners um just keep supporting your artist friends keep fucking blasting up on that heavy metal anytime people just want to talk bands just reach out to me because i mean honestly there's nothing i live for more than heavy metal so always down to chat with people and yeah if anybody's in the neighborhood come by and uh, check out some of the shows otherwise just catch us on twitch we'll always be there thank you for tuning in and we will see you next time on gyro nation metal please don't forget to like share and subscribe the podcast can be found on twitter instagram and facebook If you would like to support this podcast, please consider checking out my Patreon. Thank you.